You are listening to another Discovering New Horizons podcast featuring Dr. Jim Polikoff. Today's guest for this Body, Mind, Soul episode is Linda Spangle, the author of numerous books, including her two latest, Life is Hard, Food is Easy, and Acts of Compassion. As always, each podcast is a search for the truth and how it applies to our daily lives and well-being. Now here to take you on this exciting New Horizons journey is our host, Dr. Jim Polikoff. Indeed, this is Dr. Jim Polikoff. And thanks to you, our numbers keep rising. My appreciation to those thousands of loyal listeners who continue to follow my podcasts. You're greatly appreciated. So let's get to it. Do you believe you could lose weight on any diet? Could excess pounds actually be due to emotional eating? And if there was ever a time in our history that we need compassion, well, it's now. My guest today is Linda Spangle, a registered nurse with a master's degree in health education. She's nationally known as a weight management coach and an author of many award-winning books. Linda has also been featured on hundreds of radio and TV shows, as well as major women's magazines such as Woman's Day, Shape, and Oprah's O. We're so pleased to have her. Welcome, Linda. It's good to have you on Dr. Jim's Discovering New Horizons. Thank you. I'm so happy to be a part of this. Well, I'm glad you could join us. Now, in in this episode, we're going to be covering the subject matter of two of your best-selling books. So let's first begin with Life is Hard, Food is Easy. Uh, Here you outline a five-step plan to overcome emotional eating and lose weight on any diet, which is amazing. So I think you first need to define emotional eating. And I suppose you're going to start off with one of my favorites, probably Girl Scout cookies. You know, emotionally, I want to back the Girl Scouts, but truly, they're actually yummies for my tummy. But anyway, emotional eating, tell us about it. Absolutely. I define emotional eating as any time you reach for food when you're not physically hungry or needing nutrition. And, you know, that might be simple. It might just be the ice cream at bedtime where kind of staring into the refrigerator because there's nothing on TV or grabbing a Girl Scout cookie because they're out on the counter. Mm. It's like you really didn't need food physically, but emotionally, it's like, oh, that would seem so nice. I would feel good. I would I would just like how that would feel if I ate that. Well, that makes a lot of sense because, uh, and I have to say, well, you mentioned sometimes when you're not watching TV, oftentimes I find myself when I am watching TV, wanting to reach for a snack of some kind just to kind of go along with the program itself. But uh, yeah. it's difficult to remember, oh, don't reach for cookies, reach for an apple, reach for an orange, whatever the case might be. So I understand what you're saying. So aside from the price tag of what food costs, what's the real cost of emotional eating in your opinion? Yeah, I think it's that for people, especially who struggle with their weight, emotional eating just destroys them. 
They might work so hard at being on a weight loss plan. And I've seen this in my work over the years, do really great for a few days. And then one day they get feeling down or depressed and they just think, uh, just, I just want to let it go. And they grab a carton of ice cream and sit on the couch and eat the whole thing. That's the downside. And the price really is the price emotionally and psychologically that overweight people struggle with anyway. And emotional eating just adds to it. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Now, a recent study indicates that more than two uh, in five American adults, that's about 42%, are obese. Is that part of the problem? I mean, is food now for comfort rather than survival? Oh, I think a lot of times it is. Um, I think it's really sad that obesity and just simply being overweight is increasing so much in America. You know, if we go to a mall or any public place, it just it's just amazing how many more people I see um, who are not even a little bit overweight, but a lot overweight. And I don't know exactly how to kind of think of the cause for it, but I think in many cases, yes, um, using food for reasons other than our physical needs is a huge part of it. When you were talking about TV, I was saying it's interesting that we we want something. So we sit in front of TV and we're hoping to be entertained. But a lot of times we are not entertained. Sometimes we're bored. Sometimes mm -hmm. we're disgusted or upset. Very and so true. food food kind of takes the place of that. It's like, ah, now I feel entertained. These cookies are really nice and my mouth likes them. Uh, well, that's exactly right. Uh, we're going to get into your five steps in a moment. But first, I, I want to express a pet peeve to you. You know, most of us are so fortunate here in America. Most of us don't go hungry. But for those who do, and for the rest of the world that is in hunger, I think it's a shame we waste so much food. Now, in your book, you state every time you eat food, your body doesn't need, you're wasting food. True? Isn't that an interesting thought? Over the years in my clinic and my weight loss coaching, I had so many people who would say, I, I grew up at the Clean Your Plate Club, and I can't leave food on my plate. And so we would work on ways to, uh, to conquer that. I had one lady that decided she would leave a piece of food the size of one pea on her plate every night. And she did that. And over time, she made it in increased about the size of two peas. Little by little, she trained herself that she could leave food on her plate and that she didn't have to eat it all. Now, this but is I not the story think, of the princess and the pea, is it? it, it no, it's not really that one. <laughs> but it's true. You know, most of us grew up with the idea, first of all, that we should not waste food. We were taught that as kids. And then especially now. Right, all the starving people in India. I, I remember right. hearing that as a kid. And oh. I think I wonder they sing a lot India, but you know, all the starving people. And yet we left food and we never got it to the starving people. So how did that help them? I'm not sure. I know. That's why I always think too, you can't be of help to them by you eating the food. And you quoted one of my favorite lines, which is anytime you eat food that your body doesn't need, you are wasting it. So you mm -hmm. can waste it into the trash or waste it into your body because either way, you're not able to do anything really good with that food anymore. So let's talk about eating solutions. Uh, in your five-step plan, you describe a difference between head hunger and heart hunger. Can you explain that? Absolutely. That was something that came about through my own research during the years that I ran my weight loss clinic. I found that 
a lot of times people would start to crave something that was chewy or crunchy. It might be nuts or chips or popcorn. And when we would analyze the craving, I started to have them ask the question, what do I want to chew on in life? And when they asked that question, it became kind of easy. Well, my boss or the deadline or my kids yelling or just, you know, I want to chew on something. And so the next step is, well, if I eat something, will that change it? Will that make my boss be nicer or make my kids stop yelling? Of course not. So the question you have to ask is, what can I do instead? And I encourage people come up with a list of things that they can do when you're feeling the pressure emotions like stress and anger and frustration, and you want to chew on something, what are other ways that you can deal with those particular emotions? Mm-hmm. Now, that one is head hunger. In other words, you want to chew on something. It's pressure emotions like anger, frustration, and stress. The second one is heart hunger. Interestingly, with heart hunger, you may not even be feeling a particular craving, but you just want something. So you start kind of walking around the house thinking, huh, I want something, but I don't know what I want. Interestingly, what you'll usually choose, though, in that case is something more smooth and creamy. Ice cream is one of the most common heart hunger foods, but it could also be things like pasta or a cinnamon roll. Heart hunger is related to some kind of empty emotions, meaning I'm missing something, maybe you're sad, you're lonely, you're wishing you had a relationship. And so again, you have to ask a question, wait a minute, I'm wanting ice cream tonight. What am I missing or what am I wishing for? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you can come up with some kind of answer, you know, it could be that, again, I'm feeling sad and lonely because I live by myself and I wish I had a partner. But once you identify that, go back to the question, what can I do instead? I mean, eating a bunch of ice cream is not going to give you a new relationship. Well, so, that's that's very true. But you know? let's let's go further up with this emotion leading that you're you're touching upon. Emotional leading, and, and you also mentioned the word stress, which I think is so important. In chapter six of your book, you contend that dealing with your feelings without food is not easy. But how do you escape overcoming? this emotional or compensating for the stress by eating more. I mean, you talk about substitute something else. Give us some examples of what someone could do to substitute something else when they're ready to eat something that they don't need. Yep, absolutely. In fact, I'm a great example of that because I have my own struggles. And as you know, from my book, Life is Hard, Food is Easy, there are a lot of stories about me in that book and the struggles that I've had. I've had to work on that question and say, okay, what are some things I can do? And, you know, you can substitute a carrot or an apple, but that doesn't usually do it. If you're really struggling emotionally, um, it just isn't going to really make you feel better. Instead, I think of things like sometimes just taking a walk. um, Maybe it's to sit and read for a little bit or listen to some music. I have um, a recording of some really quiet, classical music. And if I sit for five minutes and listen to that, somehow I just feel eased and I don't feel quite as much of a need to go and hit the refrigerator and see what I can find. So you're talking about distracting your mind then, trying to go to something 
For example, if I feel stressed sometimes, I remember my days in Hawaii when I used to lay on a hammock and listen to the ocean. And when I do feel stress, I sometimes try to get back to that feeling. Is that what you're talking about, substituting something that can take your mind totally off of eating? And therefore, I guess you need to make a list of some kind, because if A doesn't work, now you're going to have to go to B and C, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a couple of things. You identified it well. If I can take my mind off of it, and I love that image, just picturing yourself laying on that hammock and hearing the ocean, it's sort of you can go, ah, now I think I'll be okay. And that is certainly one approach. The other approach, though, is saying, all right, what else can I do in my life right now that would add more meaning or more contentment or more happiness? And how do I cultivate that? I had one woman that decided to take up kickboxing because somehow that gave her an outlet for her stress. And she said, trust me, when I was all done with an hour of that, I didn't need to go and get ice cream anymore. (laughs) <laughs> can imagine kickboxing at 10 o'clock at night, but it does make sense as something to at least yeah. distract you. So here's the magic question, Linda. How can we achieve weight loss that lasts? Uh, and, and you might tell us, for example, what makes your book different than other diet books? But weight loss that lasts, that's always been a, a major obstacle for most people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, This book, Life is Hard, Food is Easy, does not contain a diet of any kind. The goal of the book was to help people with any kind of weight loss approach that they're doing. And over the years, I've, of course, counseled people with everything from, you know, real extreme ones to just, you know, counting calories or something. The challenge has to do with the the method is great as long as it's one that works for you. But what do you do after the method? And so my work over all these years has been around helping people with coming up with a whole new approach to life where food is not the primary thing that they need. And I will be honest, as you can tell, that doesn't come easily. The reason that it is hard for so many people to be successful long term is that it's hard work and Mm -hmm. it, it takes dedication and commitment to being that way for the rest of your life. It's not like, okay, for the next couple of months, I'll stay on the follow-up program for my diet. Instead, you have to say, okay, these are some of the things that I'm going to integrate forever, long-term. And the tools and things in the book have all focused on that direction. I'll tell you a, a simple one that comes to mind. Many years ago, I went to a conference and when I got there in the afternoon, the first thing I saw was this big table that had all kinds of snacks, some chips and dips and all kinds of things. Typical and conference. Exactly. And I thought, you know, the tool that I use in a situation like this, I do not eat food because it's there. In other words, I wasn't really hungry or needing nutrition. The food was just there. And I don't care if it's that conference buffet or if it's the samples that they want to hand out in the grocery store, that food is just there. And I'm not needing nutrition and I'm not really needing food right now. So at that particular conference, I used that phrase. I said that to myself. And then I thought, I'm going to go and take a walk. And I did. I walked all the way around the hotel building, appreciated the the nice sunshine that day. What a great option. You got exercise while avoiding food. That's that's a double take right there. Yeah. But to go to one more point from your question, what does it take for long term? 
This is a hard phrase to tell people, but you've got to do the work. And the work is what I'm talking about with learning tools and learning things you can integrate. You know, it's like relationships. If you really want to have a relationship work long term, you don't just get married or get together and go, okay, we're happy now. Instead, boy, as you would probably know, you have to do the work for your whole life. But those that do the work have a lot better chance, a lot better odds of having a long-term relationship than those who don't. That makes a lot of sense. Good advice. Now, aren't aren't the types of food that we eat an important contributor to weight gain and weight loss for that matter? I mean, for example, my background is as, as a nutritionist, and I often recommend for people who don't know exactly what they should eat and bounce from diet to diet, I'll say at least, if nothing else, stick on the Mediterranean diet. How do foods contribute to this? Do you have recommendations as far as foods and and the best type of diet, if you're going to get on one, that you're going to stay on? Well, I agree with you. The Mediterranean diet is probably one of the best as far as really good, healthy foods. They just do a great job with focusing on fruits and vegetables and just, you know, healthy oils. I really do like that. But I've also seen great success with almost everything. Um, There's a family member in in my family who has lost, she's lost now about 150 pounds. Um, She was depressed and struggling for a long time. One day she went to the hospital because she wasn't feeling well and they did a blood test and her blood sugar was way high. So she was diagnosed as diabetic and they invited her to come to a diabetic class so she could learn about it. So she showed up for the class and she was the only person there. So for eight weeks, she had a one-on-one with a nutritionist and learned many things that she could do and work on. And the choice that she did was to count carbohydrate grams. She figured out with the nutritionist's help about how much she could do per each meal or each day. And she began just tracking them. She figured out she should always have a protein and a carbohydrate together. And so she came up with kind of different meal plans and snack plans that did that. And over time, it took her probably a total of maybe two to three years. She lost half her body weight because she went from 300 pounds. She's now actually below 150. And you know, that's been probably seven or eight years ago that she started that whole approach. And she's been maintaining successfully now for several years. She still counts her carbohydrates every day. If I go to lunch with her, she'll say, let's see, I'll put this with this and this, and then I think I can do that. And she is definitely a woman to be admired. But realistically, Linda, how many people are going to be counting their carbs? How many, How is this going to work? I mean, I've noticed people going down the grocery aisle and they'll have a list and they'll, well, this has so many this and someone has this or that, et cetera. My question is, you know, what is the practical way to do this? I mean, for example, you talked about avoidance. Uh, if you know certain foods are not good for you. Uh, I mean, do you have, you recommend any sort of lists of foods that you should avoid? foods that you should eat? Or is that in another book? No, it's actually partly common sense. Partly most people have that have worked on their weight come through programs where they have learned a lot about healthy foods. But I'm going to pick on a little phrase you said, foods that are not good for you. I think food is wonderful. And I think all food 
is there to be nourish our bodies or to be enjoyed. It can be either one. I think you can eat for fuel or you can eat for fun. It's just that you have to have that imbalance. And so my sister, who is the one that lost all the weight, has a lovely piece of chocolate every day. She says, that's just part of my one treat that I do. And I think in general, there are so many different approaches. Some people will count calories and write them down. Some people do carbs. Some people do another system. A couple of things I've taught through the years, one of them is write things down until you don't need to. So I don't believe people need to write down the foods they eat and how they feel each time forever. That's kind of silly for a lot of people. I have done my own share, though, of tracking what I eat, usually for a couple of weeks. And then I was like, okay, I got it again. I see where I need to focus on things. But just to go back to that phrase about eating for pleasure or for fun, if that's something that you can figure out how to put into your life in a way that doesn't trigger a lot of overeating, then go for it. I just think there are no good and bad foods. They're simply the way that we manage our lives with food in our world, because boy, it's there. Well, I think you have a good point. But of course, I, you know, avoidance of sugar, for example, there are so many foods out there that have such a huge content of sugar, uh, not just from a standpoint of uh, being a diet or becoming a diabetic, but from the standpoint of good health. There are certain things that I think you can't avoid. And, and I, you know, will uh, emphasize to our listeners, you know, and keep that in mind and understand which are good foods and bad foods. But Yes, I think you can enjoy what you eat. I think it's important you do or else you're going to have very boring dinners at the table and lunches and things yeah. of that nature. So I, I think you make a very good point. But anyway, I agree this, with you about the point about sugar is absolutely important. I want to affirm that because there are so many foods these days that have extra sugar put into them, even especially ones that you just buy from the grocery store. The place that I go with that is. Anytime someone tries to say never, ever, and so I have had people that say, I just will not eat any sugar at all. Well, that works for some people, but not for all people. And I think you've got to go back to figuring out what works for you and what helps you be healthy and successful. Does that make sense? That makes sense. Now, I have to say, Linda, that all of this food talk is weighing me down. I'm pretty bad at puns. <laughs> Uh, not in good taste. Uh, whoops, another one. Anyway, uh, it's time to become passionate. Uh, let's turn to your book, Acts of Compassion. Now, you wrote this book with your husband, Michael Spangle. Uh, yes. Since your collective goal, apparently, is to help readers deepen their understanding and learn how to make compassion part of their daily lives, how has it worked for you and Michael? You know, it was such an interesting project. My husband is a professor, and he's written several textbooks. I am a consumer writer, and I've written, as you know, several books that are for, for consumers. When we came up with the idea to write this book, it came out of watching some of the pain in our broken world, as I call it, and feeling like if we can do something that we could offer the world to help things feel better, we'd sure like to. And so we started playing around with this idea of focusing a lot more on compassion. And what ended up happening, my husband wrote most of the content of the book, but he wrote it in academic language. 
And so it was, of course, impassive voice, very long sentences. Um, it was great content. But I took that content and rewrote almost all of it, rewrote the stories so that people would want to read the stories and put it into what I call consumer language. A lot. You are the creative writer. I am the creative writer. What was so fun, we loved doing this work together. We did a lot of it, of course, during the, the pandemic. And so we were around each other a lot. Do you know that we never had a fight over that book? We just somehow... He might say, I'd like this story. And I'd say, I don't know if it should be there, but we would talk it through and we'd figure it out. And we both had great passion about the writing of the book, as well as just the whole subject of showing more compassion in our world. Sounds like it, the book, writing the book actually helped bring you together. You know, it did. It helped us understand places where we might have been not, not quite getting each other. And the longer we worked on it, the more both of us became a lot more aware of places where we can show compassion to others or where there's a need for compassion. You know, as you know, in the book, Acts of Compassion, there's a lot of places where we just get busy and we stop noticing. And so we don't pay attention. And it's when we stop and pay attention and slow down, the first step is you got to notice where there's a need. Then you got to have some kind of a feeling about it. And then you got to do something about it. How about well, if I and here's that? a here's a tip for our audience: write a book with your spouse. <laughs> I think you've hit on something here, perhaps. But yeah, in any I think case, kind of rare. <laughs> in any case, you cite in in the book you cite an interesting study done by the California Institute of Technology, which shows after seven minutes of receiving compassion. It deepened the closeness, uh, the closeness between people and let go of a lot of their anger and bitterness. Can you talk about that study a little more, that seven minutes? Yeah, it's a fascinating thing. And of course, compassion can be done in one minute or it can be done for a whole day. But the study found seven minutes of just staying focused. And it might be just spending quiet time with another person for that long or having a quiet conversation or just in your heart caring about someone. Seven minutes is an interesting time frame because it's long enough that you can't just say I'm done and walk away. You have to stay and be present. And the focusing like that does make a difference. It brings people closer together. But the person receiving the compassion, they found showed more happiness, more peacefulness, just felt more contented and grateful for having received that. So you're doing a good service. But some people, of course, say, well, I, I do care. People don't understand, but I do care. But if we're not certain if we have enough compassion, how do we learn to be truly compassionate? Oh, and that is a great question. I think a lot of us do wonder if we really do. And I tell you what, it's so easy to be impatient with people and just form immediate thoughts on, well, this is what they're really like. One of the biggest lines that came to me from the work we did on this book, we don't know their story. And I have to say that to myself. I will see someone looking a certain way or acting a certain way, and my mind goes, well, that's this and this about them. And then I have to stop myself and say, wait. I don't know their story and their story might explain a lot of things that I will never know. But my job 
is to simply show some caring and compassion without knowing our story. There's another piece to that that I've had to work on. Compassion does not have an agenda. That means I don't do an act of compassion and then sit back waiting for someone to appreciate it. I'll give you an example. A couple of days ago, across the street, there are two beautiful kind of good-sized dogs. And I looked out and I saw them trotting down the street. I was like, oh, oh I think they got out of their fence. Mm -hmm. And so I went outside right away and kind of coaxed them and coaxed them. And they went back into their yard and I closed mm -hmm. the gate. So then I rang the doorbell of the home. We kind of know them just a little bit. And a little boy who's like six or seven answered the door. And I said, just tell your dad that the dogs were out and I got him back in and the gate is closed. He said, okay, well, the man never said anything about it. I'm going to bet that that little boy didn't even tell him because he'd have gotten yelled at for leaving the gate open. And for a little bit, I thought, well, Bob should come and tell me, thank you for putting the dogs in. And then I went, no, an act of compassion, which is what that was, doesn't have an agenda. And so if you give a I gift, don't expect a gift in return is what exactly. you're really saying. Or you may mm -hmm. not even get a thank you, but you don't do it to get the thank you. You do it out of the caring spirit in your heart. Now, many people don't know what to say after someone's been through a significant loss, such as death or perhaps a breakup in a relationship. What do you recommend when you're not sure what someone's been through, how to identify, how to really show that person compassion yeah. without being overly pushy? invading their space, that kind of thing? That is such a good question. And you're so right that when we're around someone who's experienced a loss, we, we don't know what to say. And so sometimes we say way too much. One of the best advice I ever heard was, when you don't know what to say, don't say hardly anything. The other thing is, it's mm -hmm. always okay to say, I am so sorry for your loss. That's an appropriate thing. You can say, I'm here for you. I'll sit with you. And if you want to talk, that's fine. If not, I'll just sit here with you. Um, I've learned to say my heart is with you to people that are really struggling with losses. There's also a few things they recommend you not say. Um, one of the ones that I thought was fascinating is don't say at least and then follow it with at least they didn't suffer. At least your car mm. can get repaired. That's what we, we want to fill the space with. It. Well, at least you can have another child or something. Don't say that. So you're talking about the expression of compassion itself yeah. is sufficient. Yes, exactly. And if sometimes the power of your presence, as you know from some of the stories in that book, the power of your presence is so much more important than almost anything else at all. If you don't mind, I'll do the quick story of when my husband was new in the ministry. He's a, a former minister. Oh, so he's a minister as well. I see. Yes. Okay. yes. I thought I picked that up in the book. All right. Uh-huh. And when he was on his internship, he got to know this dear little white-haired lady named Mrs. Lothian. And so he would go visit her and have tea with her. And one day he got a call from her daughter saying that she was in the hospital and would, would my husband go and visit her? So he said, sure. And he was kind of new at all this. He didn't quite know what to say, but he went into the, the room and there she was looking kind of frail and they chatted a little bit. And then she said, by the way, up in that corner up there, 
of the room, I see angels. I think they're waiting for me. My husband was like, oh my, I, I better go get the doctor or the nurse or something. And she grabbed my husband's hand and she said, no, please stay. You are enough. And that phrase has stuck with us forever because he was enough. And he stayed with her another 10 minutes. Then she went to sleep. He left the room. The nurse came in and said that she had died. And just knowing that our presence sometimes is way more powerful than the words or the solutions, just being there for people. Just being there for people. Absolutely. And I would imagine it works also in a different connotation. Uh, aside from if someone is grieving because of their loss or their car was smashed up, what, whatever, an injury. Aside from that, I would think that compassion also uh, involves reaching out to people. For example, someone who served in the armed forces, thanking them for their service. That's compassion as well, right? Yes, absolutely. I have. That's another thing I've added into my life since working on this book. If I see someone with a hat, for example, that says, Navy or something like that, I will always go and say, excuse me, thank you for your service. And Mm -hmm. I believe in exactly doing those kind of things. There's, you know, we talked about seven minutes. I want to talk for a second about one minute of compassion. We think we need a long amount of time to show compassion, but sometimes all we need is one minute or even less than that. Many years ago, um, I was not able to have children and I went through major surgeries and lost several children um, through premature birth. And I had a tubal pregnancy that pretty well guaranteed I could no longer have children of my own. And I was in the hospital and a nurse came in and I was just curled up in the bed and I was crying. And she looked at me and she said, are you all right? And I said, no. And she said, okay. And she left the room. And that moment, all I needed, I didn't need, I know she was probably busy. I didn't need her spend seven minutes. I just wanted 30 seconds. If she had just put a hand on my shoulder and said, oh, I'm so sorry. Um, Just touching, just reaching out and touching someone. And just let me know she cared that I was sad that day. That would have meant so much. Now you state in the book that compassion starts in your brain. When you stop noticing a person's clues, which is interesting, uh, worry, fear, sadness, anxiety, these are signs that your mind is being distracted and you're ignoring those clues. Am I correct? Yeah, it's so easy to do that. Our lives are busy and they're full and we're doing all these things. That makes me think of another tool in the book where it talked about when you're so overwhelmed with things that you can't even really notice if your own kids are having struggles. Look for something green. Look around you in the room and just see if you can see something, you know, a picture or on a little toy. Look for something green. And then once you find something green, then take a breath. Look around for something else that's green. After you do that and you find two or three things that are green, you'll find you're amazingly more calm. Green is a very calming color, color, and it trigger something in your brain to go, oh, okay, I guess I can calm down. 
Interesting. Is there a secondary color in case you don't see any green? You know, I don't know that there <laughs> is, but I just always think that's a fascinating one. Yeah, and you know, it is. When it comes to calming down, another story I love, when my one of my nephews was about two or three years old, every time his mom would put him in his car seat, he would just wail and cry and just be so upset. And one day, she was sitting with him in their house before they went out and she grabbed his teddy bear and she said, look, the teddy bear puts its little paws together and it thinks quiet thoughts and it helps it to be calm. I bet we could do that when you get in the car seat. So he agreed he would try it. So she put him in the car seat. She said, put your little hands together and think quiet thoughts. And he did. And it was so amazing because just like his teddy bear, from that time on, he was able to calm himself. And I think if a little three-year-old can do it, we should probably just put our little heads together more and calm <laughs> ourselves too. That's a very good point. Uh, let's though discuss, we've discussed uh, showing passion to others, but let's talk about self-compassion, showing compassion to ourselves. I mean, so many people are critical of, oh, my God, I did this. I'm not going to do that again. Why did I do this? Those sorts of things go through your mind, and you're criticizing yourself. You're actually spurring on negative emotions. Talk about self-compassion. Oh, and it's so important. We certainly know that the more you focus on negative emotions, the more negative you will feel. And, of course, that takes away your chances for happiness and peacefulness. It takes some learning to be able to be compassionate to yourself. But the practicing of it is, I just think, a daily thing where you say, okay, I will take care of myself today. I will do the best I can. And there's another tool that I love. It's called reframing. It's a, a psychological tool. But instead of saying, oh, I never do anything right and being hard on yourself, you stop and say, wait, that's not true. And you reframe it and you say, I do a lot of things right. Maybe I didn't do this one right today, but I do a lot of things right. Exactly. Start thinking of all the positive things that yeah. you do in exactly. a day. There are so many positive things that people do that they don't really realize they're doing them. Yeah. And I think the positivity can easily overweigh the negative attitudes yep. that many people have of themselves. Absolutely. I think that the more you cultivate an attitude of compassion and of caring for others, again, in acts of compassion, we talk about many ways that you can just notice something going on, have a feeling about it, and then do something about it. And it can be one small thing or it can be something big. It doesn't matter. It's the fact that you let your heart speak and show caring to someone that counts. So let's conclude with something that makes us all happy, visualization. Uh, I, in your book, you note that researchers found that by simply taking a few minutes each day to picture good things happening to others can actually make us happy. Is this true? Oh, it's amazing. The research that looked at that um, talked about how we struggle a lot of times when we see someone begging for money on a street corner. All of our cities kind of have those struggles. And our quick reaction is to go, they look pretty fit. They could probably get a job. But then we have to say, but wait a minute, um, I don't know their story. And you can decide, you could give them money, but I have one friend who always just hands them a gift card for a fast food restaurant. So at least they can get food if they need it. But the research said, 
thinking positive thoughts towards someone actually makes you feel a lot better and it might even help them. And so I've been practicing that. If I see someone on a street corner, I send them some good thoughts. I might say a little prayer for them. Do you know the biggest change? It didn't change that person in the corner, but it changed me. Mm-hmm. It was something having, you did for yourself. Yeah, Just, and I quit having yeah. bad thoughts and attitudes about them, and it made me feel happier as a person. That's interesting because you do see people sometimes holding up signs. You know, I'm a veteran or whatever they might say, whether you're whether it's true or not, you're you're not really sure. But you you want to reach out and give them something, but you can't give everybody something because yeah. there will be nothing left to give. Yeah. So your your point about the fact that you can have good thoughts towards someone and hope that things are going to work out for them for the yeah. better, that is yeah. helping yourself. Yeah. That's also increasing your own sense of compassion, correct? Absolutely. You know, when we think about the visualization piece, um, I have a sister-in-law who every December does a Salvation Army bell ringing, um, you know, takes her turns at sure. the store. And, you know, we look at those people and I think, oh, you're just routinely ringing the bell. And she said, when I'm ringing that bell, I studied enough about what Salvation Army does I know that a high percent of what comes in goes directly to help people in the community. She said, I picture people that are struggling, somebody who lost their home to a fire or that has illness. I ring the bell and I picture these people. And it makes such a difference in how I feel about standing there and doing compassionate act of ringing the bell. Interesting. Now, now Linda, something personal here. You're from Iowa the heartland of America, and uh, from the state of uh, Iowa, you talk about in your book, The Wave. Can you tell us the story about the Iowa, how it works with the wave? Oh, it's a fascinating thing. goes back probably three, four years ago. um, The University of Iowa built a new children's hospital. It was a fairly tall structure, but it happened to be right next to Kinnick Stadium, which is where the football games for the university are played. And one of the ladies that worked around there realized that from the 12th floor of the children's hospital, you could look right down into the stadium and that sometimes patients would be up there at that 12th floor and they would wave at the stadium. She thought, what if we people in the stadium waved back? So she contacted a PR person with the university and between them, they came up with this idea put a whole lot of things on social media, spread the word, let's do wave back to the kids and let's do it at the end of the first quarter of the game. So that particular game, the day came and she was nervous. She didn't know more than 10 people would wave, but at the end of the first quarter, 70,000 people turned and waved to the children and their parents that were up at that 12th floor. 70,000 people, 70,000 waves. Amazing. Yeah. And ever since then, that began a new tradition. And every home game at the end of the first quarter, they stop, they turn, they face the children's hospital, and all the people in the stadium wave. And maybe you've hit upon it. Maybe people who may not be in a football stadium, maybe just a simple wave to someone. Shows compassion. You know, and it reminds us that there are so many ways that we can show caring to people. Those that are in that stadium don't know those patients and those little kids, but they can say, I don't know you, but I'm going to show you I'm thinking of you today and caring about you as they wave. 
Well, Linda, we've covered a lot of ground and we probably just scratched the surface. So I'm going to encourage our listeners to pick up both your books, Life is Hard, Food is Easy, and Acts of Compassion. I know they're available on Amazon.com, but I also want to remind our listeners to come to our website and find your website and other links to your good work. So I want to thank you so much, Linda. It's been extremely informative. You're a delight. Thank you. I just really love being a part of this. And thank you for having me on your podcast. All right. My pleasure. Thank you. Why not discover more information about our guest, Linda Spangle, and her weight loss book, including the latest Life is Hard and Food is Easy. And of course, her most recent book, Acts of Compassion, bringing love and caring back into your life. All you need to do is simply visit our website, jamespolikoff.com. That's right jamespolakoff.com. That's james, P-O-L-A-K-O-F.com. You'll also discover a wide variety of valuable resources on our website and other terrific Body, Mind, Soul podcast episodes. Again, jamespolakoff.com. Now back to Dr. Jim. Our production coordinator, Faith Michelle, is absolutely correct. Our Discovering New Horizons website contains an amazing amount of valuable information and resources. And we also have a number of other great body, mind, soul podcasts that you might be interested in and should perhaps listen to. Keep those emails and suggestions coming. We really appreciate that because it gives us insight of things you might be interested in having us cover. As you know, we cover a wide variety, so don't be ashamed of saying, well, can you do this? We'd be interested in this particular topic. Keep those emails coming, the comments posted on our website. And again, we invite you to visit jamespolikoff.com. This is Dr. Jim Polikoff. I thank you for listening.